Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio, this is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. This is the first time in St. Louis on the Air history that we've recorded an entire episode of the program inside the Missouri State Capitol. I would love to say that the defining characteristics of this building are the splendid artwork, are the incredible busts of Missouri legends like Bob Barker. But it's mainly known for being the epicenter of state government, and at least more recently, a whole lot of arguing and gridlock. But on Wednesday, the gamesmanship and cutting political insults took a back seat to Missouri's 57th governor. We promise the return of integrity to state government. And above all, we promise to return people first mentality. And today, I firmly believe we have done just that. Parsons' office provided reporters with a packet of 57 wins during his roughly five years in office, including filling five statewide vacancies, appointing the first female majority Missouri Supreme Court, and kickstarting the expansion of Interstate 70. And his speech also touched on how his administration handled natural disasters and the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, have there been critics? Sure. But critics are a dime a dozen. And one thing I have learned in life, you will never be criticized by someone doing more than you. It's always be the person doing the less who makes the most noise. Yesterday, I was joined by my colleague, Sarah Kellogg, to speak with Parson about his state of the state speech and his legacy. Governor, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Ah, Glad to be here this morning. You mentioned during your speech an almost overwhelming amount of things that you've done throughout your tenure as governor, and you also alluded to how some of those decisions were not universally beloved by everyone. How do you balance doing things as governor you feel are necessary and right, uh, but may make a lot of people upset? Yeah, well, it, it is a balance to be able to do. But, but I think it goes back to the way I become governor uh, under the circumstances were at the time. You know, you walked in here and you really just got, you, did, you wasn't out there on a political stump speech. You didn't have to make any promises to anybody. And I remember sitting at this very table that we're sitting at today with you, that we basically said, what really makes a difference in people's lives that we could do in this administration? And we really went with the infrastructure and workforce development. We know neither one of them were political issues, that they were going to be good for everybody. So I, I think that's the reason we made those a priority and stayed with them. We know there's always going to be hot-button political issues when you talk to the issues of today that will always disagree between Republicans and Democrats. But we were really trying to find, the I, I want to say, the sweet spot a little bit. What is it we can work with both sides of the aisle to really move Missouri forward? And I think we did. I, I don't think there's any question about that when you look at the businesses that have come here, the 110,000 people that's in the workforce now that we didn't have before, you know, the tax structure, the income. There's just a lot of things in there that we talked about that uh, was so important to us. We didn't know when we first started out all those things were going to take place the way they did. But we do believe it's a foundation for future governors, no matter who that governor is, 
that if you build on the, what's best for, for Missourians and you put the people first, no matter where they live, whether it's urban, rural, and you're just doing things to help everybody, those things work. And, I, and hopefully somebody will look back at that and says, hey, they've done a lot of really good things and was able to walk that line a little bit uh, where it wasn't so political every day. Regarding your state of the state address, there was some criticism from more conservative Republicans in the Senate. There isn't a plan to reduce spending within this budget to make the government smaller. What do you have to say about those comments? Well, I think we actually have done that. We've done it three times. We've cut income taxes three times in a row, and you put money back in people's pocket. But I also think, uh, you know, that, that when you say that, you're not taking into consideration you're, you're growing, you know. When all of a sudden your revenues go up 40%, you are going to spend more money, just like a normal person does. What you do, what government don't understand, is you don't spend 50% when you bring in 40%. You know, And I, I think so when you start talking about early childhood learning, for example, uh, daycare, those are going to cost money to do it. And we need to be in a position where we can afford those type of things that help everybody to be able to do that. So, again, I think when you're growing and you're building jobs and you're building the workforce, that's how you generate more revenue. So it's not like you're staying at the same spot and, you're, and your spending will go up. But I think, again, the important thing is you got to balance that. Some Democratic lawmakers also noted that it was misplaced for you to criticize the Biden administration in terms of his spending priorities when federal money makes up such a large percentage of recent budgets. Do they have a point? I don't think so at all. Look, I, I think there's no, I, I, whether you're Democrat or Republican, the everyday people by a large margin knows this border crisis is a problem in the United States. I mean, you're talking about record numbers of people coming over that's not been vetted, not been screened. I mean, you're seeing more and more of that becoming a problem every day. And look, there is a right way to come into this country, and we've always been able to maintain that through almost every administration, whether there's somewhat more than others. But what you're seeing now is wide open, and it is going to have a tremendous effect on this country. So when I talk about the president and the federal government not doing their job, I firmly believe, and most Missourians would believe the same thing that you can't just open these borders up and let people come across. But do you think the Biden administration has been helpful in other things, like providing money for infrastructure or providing money through the American Rescue Plan that helped a lot of your budgetary priorities? Well, I don't think any time the, the federal government is such a, a, a different entity, but I think any time you're getting money out of the federal government, regardless who the president is, I think that's really, honestly, I think for most of that's probably out far out of the reach of a, of a president. I think what's really is important is who the department heads are and where they're going. You know, when you have Congressman Grace, for example, sitting on a congressional committee that has the purse strings to infrastructure, when you had Senator Blunt there in the position he was, regardless who the president was, he has the ability to bring resources to, to your state. So, again, it, it's kind of like... Uh, I guess it's kind of like me being governor and all of a sudden we put more money in mental health. I'm not the one that delivers those services. The, the people out there do. So I think that's the way you got to look at it, good or bad. I, I, I don't know that's that. It's like Congress is making that funding available. Somebody's approving it. During your speech, you stated, quote, when I became governor, Missourians were tired of the turmoil, political infighting, and self-involved personalities 
they were tired of quitters. And I want to focus on the political infighting part because several listeners wanted us to ask you about the deteriorating situation in the Missouri legislature. One person actually compared it to the Real Housewives television show. Have you ever watched that, by the no, way? I, I haven't. Neither no, have I. I, don't, I don't I'm more of a BoJack Horseman yeah, kind yeah, of person. Yeah. But, Real Housewives uh, is great, I will just oh, say. <laughs> is there anything that a governor can do to exert leadership amid legislative squabbling. Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had the ability to do all of that, uh, you know, and, and do it uh, Mike Parsons' way or the governor's way, but the reality of it is the Constitution has it specifically set up. You have the executive branch and, and you have the executive, and then you have the legislative branch uh, of government to be able to do that. Those are issues that they have to handle on their own. Look, I, I think the one thing I've learned, I've, I've had the privilege to be in the House and the Senate, both of those chambers, and see it function, in, and I want to say, in much more of a normal setting. But what you're seeing is what, what I'm more concerned about is almost you're starting to see Washington politics come to Missouri. And I don't think anybody wants that. I think Missouri has always been able to find a way to have solutions, you know, no matter which party was in control. There was always things that were being done, and I think you're getting to a point where I don't think that's a good representation of Missouri. I think when you come up here, any legislator, you remember when the first day you come here and how humbled you was to be to come here to be a public servant, representing the people. So it's not about you. It's about all those people, and it's about democracy. And if you're not in the majority of what, whether it be Republicans or Democrats, and all of a sudden, just because you don't win a vote or you're not in the majority, that's the way democracy works. And you need to move on and you need to find solutions. But uh, it's unfortunate what's going on now. Uh, I don't think it's a good. I don't think it's a good image for our state. Uh, I think uh, hopefully they figure out somebody can figure out how to come up with a solution to that. I hope so. But again, we'll see. Well, right now, there is currently a stalemate in the Missouri Senate where Senate members of the Missouri Freedom Caucus are holding up 25 of your gubernatorial appointments, including Acting Health and Senior Service Director Paula Nicholson and Acting Department of Social Services Robert Nodell Director, unless the Senate passes a resolution making it harder to amend the Constitution. What are your thoughts that your appoint, you know, your appointees are being caught in the middle of all yeah, of this? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I, I think you got to go back to understand or they need to understand they're not my appointees i mean yes i do it but they're set up by the legislative branch that's the system in place that was put for all these people to come here you're talking about private individuals that are just trying to come up here and to do a good job nobody has anything against them that we know of and they're volunteered to do this to set on whether it be dental boards health care boards mental health boards you know nonprofit agencies those people have done nothing wrong whatsoever, and they've got caught up in a political infighting. Whether they accept the appointments we've made or not, I don't think it's a question that they've got anything against the appointees that I know of. It's a question that we're using it for leverage. It, it, I think we all know that. The point of it is, that's not me. They're, they're hurting there. It's hurting everyday people that just want to do their jobs. So regardless what they do, then those appointments will go on. I mean, we can... There's different things we can do, and we just put them back in place. But, but again, I, I think to use that for a leverage point because it's like going to affect me, it really doesn't affect me. I'm in my last year. I mean, I really am. So the people that are coming here, though, and what's, what's ironic about all that, whether it's almost every senator up there has sent me letters, almost everyone supported these people, and now you're going to turn them down? I mean, that's between them and – 
uh, the people out there. I mean, again, it's not, I don't know that's that huge of a leverage point, but we'll see what happens. One of the other aspects of your speech is you're offering a 3.2% raise to state employees. Uh, Kid Cat Blue on Reddit said to us, the pay raises that you have signed off on last year are a start, but still do not bring most state employees a living wage. And we've seen that play out in agencies like the Children's Division, where investigators make a starting salary of $43,000 a year. They're not getting an additional to the 3.2%. Um, is 3.2% enough to fill those critical types of jobs that are having a lot of trouble being filled. Well, I, I think, Jason, to answer that question, yes, everybody gets the 3.2, but I think since the beginning, since 2018, we're probably somewhere between 23% pay increases across the board. So you've got to be able to work your way there, and I think the foundation we're using to build those pay raises, the way we've done it is the right way to do it. I think the, big, the important thing that we've stressed all along, we want to be competitive. We, we, state employees don't have to make more than other people do. But if you are a specialist in some area, we want to be competitive with the private sector. And that's what we're trying to get to. And still be able to kind of balance the budget, still be able to make sure that you can maintain these raises for years to come. I, I, again, the mentality of state government is one year at a time. I think we all know that's been around here. But when you start doing pay raises and you start doing increases, whether it's the mental health, education, roads, whatever it is, you got to be able to maintain it, too. So there's always that aspect of it. So I think we've really moved the needle on, on state wages, um, and we're, we're going to keep moving forward on that. During your speech, you mentioned as an accomplishment reducing, quote, the number of abortions in our state from 8,000 annually to zero. And that's because you signed legislation into law that would ban abortions except for medical emergencies. What would you say to people who feel that an abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest is too extreme and provides a disincentive for younger people to move to the state? Yeah. I, I, a couple of things there. I think in my career, we started out with 8,000 a year annually, and we have worked that down. And when, you that. Are, when you like entered the yeah, legislature, Yeah, when, when we first basically. come here. When I first come here, uh, I want to say as a younger young guy, uh, and, and to all that we've been through. But look, the abortion issue is going to be front and center this election year. There's no question about that. It looks like that's going to be the front and center topic of that. Most people have an opinion on abortion today, whether they believe in it or whether they don't. I don't know that you change the needle very much. Any of us do. Uh, I would say the people that I know and the people I'm familiar with, and as a pulse, I guess, as the governor, you don't change the needle much either way. It's just a matter to see what's going to happen. The legislative branch sent that to me. I signed it, so I support it uh, the way that was. There, as you mentioned, there is an abortion legalization initiative that could get enough signatures to be put on the ballot. And at the same time, there's a bid from lawmakers to make the Constitution harder to amend, which is colloquially known as IP reform. And you make the decision on when those things go on the ballot. Would you want to have voters decide IP reform first in August and then have the election about legalizing abortion in November? So if the IP reform passes the threshold would have to go up. Yeah, I, th I think those, that's kind of a, I, I, an unanswered question for me right now Do we see what happens. I, I don't know how that's all going to figure out or how it's going to play out. I don't know what the legislative branch is going to do on IP. I don't know whether this initiative petition they're doing, whether it even gets there. So there's just a lot of unknowns. But, uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll address that. I think to answer your question, I, I don't want to sound like I'm just not answering your question. I just think there's a lot of unknowns to that. And I think at some point we'd be glad to answer that. 
For some Republicans passing IP reform, asking that to the voters is their number one priority this session. But you look in the, you know, you look at results in states like Ohio and Arkansas, they're not exactly Democratic run states, those proposals failed. Do you see a similar fate in Missouri if that were to go on the ballot? I don't know if it's necessarily to be like Ohio. Ohio's got a different breakdown as far as Republican Democrats goes. I mean, Missouri's a pretty red state, uh, you know, when you look at those issues. But as far as IP being a priority, I, I want the legislative branch to get something done on it, but it should have been a priority three years ago. We, we've kind of, kind of, I want for better terms, we've passed this thing by each year and each year for a lot of years. And now all of a sudden, you know, it becomes front and center. And there's enough blame to go around a lot of different people for not getting it done. But the bottom line is it should have been done long before now. But we'll see what happens in the legislative branch, see what they do. One proposal in your State of the State address is $120 million for K-12 education on top of fully funding the foundation formula. There are some criticisms of the formula saying maybe it's outdated, needs to be updated to reflect the needs for education now. Is that something you would support? You know, I, I was here when they redid the formula once upon a time. That is a huge undertaking to start off with. And then you open a lot of doors to a lot of different things. Uh, you get into rural schools versus urban schools and everything. I think the thing we should remember about K-12 through education, what you're saying up, we've increased spending $700 million since I've been governor. That's a significant amount. You fully funded transportation. Those things have never happened before. I think at some point, you've got to, in the education community, and I think they're hearing this message loud and clear. Okay, whatever the funding formula is, at some point, you got to perform. And you got to make sure kids are getting an education. Because I don't care how much money you're giving you, if your kids are not meeting scores, if they're not meeting how to read, how to write, you know, that's a problematic. Money's not going to cure it if you still got the problem today. So there's got to be an accountability on both sides. And I, I think we're trying to head in that direction. The past few state of the states that I've covered with you, it's always really laser focused on budgetary proposals. And this year you asked for policy in the form of Representative Brenda Shields and Senator Lauren Arthur's child care tax credit program. Why did you single out those bills? What makes child care such an important issue for you? Well, I don't think the, the, the driving force of the future of Missouri is why that's so important. When you think you only have the ability to take care of 39% of our kids across our state to have facilities that be able to do that, we know that's not a good area to be in, especially when we're trying to bring businesses here, we're trying to build a workforce. And to be able to keep the economy going, you want people at work. So the reality of it is, you know, if you can't take care of that child in, in, in an adequate facility, you know, where do you go? So you either gotta stay home, or you got to hope you got grandparents or hope you got friends, you got family members to do that. And or you try to take them somewhere wherever you can just get by. And I don't think that's always a good scenario to put a child in that position. So I think that's a priority that helps Missouri. I, help, I think it helps our economy. I think it helps our businesses. And I think it helps families. And I, I think, again, I think that's a perfect example, that piece right there. Yesterday when I said putting people first in, in a speech a lot, that's truly putting them first, not us putting them first, and that really helps them. Governor, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I remember in 2007 when I first met you, it was when then State Representative Ed Robb called me over and was like, hey, I want to introduce you to two former sheriffs, State Representative Mike Parson <laughs> and State Representative Kenny 
Jones. Yeah. I don't remember what we talked about, something sheriff-related, but I had no idea at the time I would be speaking to a future governor of Missouri, including one that would be very consequential, for better or for worse. Yeah, right. Um, two questions. Did you ever think that you would be in this position, and how do you want to be remembered as governor? You know, an interesting thing, Jason, when you when you said that, it made me think of uh, the book the, the, that they're writing, No Turning Back. There's with no G. Turning with an apostrophe. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of fit me uh, on that. One of the things in the book, it talks about my mom and dad with what you just said. And it, and it was talking about when they would take me to the hospital to be born. And one of the things that's said in there, nor did Victor and Helen, my mom and dad's names, realize they were given birth to the 57th governor of the state of Missouri. And that really kind of catches you. And when you say that back in those days, uh, you have no idea you're going to be in this position. You just never know that's going to be what's going to happen. I think a lot of things prepare you for this position in my lifetime. I think the gray hair portion of it was was a plus to be able to come in the way I come in. But I, I tell you what, I go back to uh, when, when I come out of the military, I was overseas for two years or for two tours of duty. And when I come back, I said I would never leave this state again because I love the people of this state and I love this state. And I've had an opportunity as governor of this state is really try to do the best thing for the people of this state. Controversy is always going to come with this job. No matter what you do, you're never going to make everybody happy. There's going to be different opinions. But I think at the end of the day, I hope people will look at it and, and try to say, you know, he did what government's supposed to. I might not agree with him all the time, but I believe he was really trying to put people first in this state and was trying to do the right thing. And I, and I hope that's kind of the way people look at it. Governor, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Along with my colleague Sarah Kellogg, we spoke with Governor Parson yesterday in his office. Coming up, Sarah joins me for analysis of Parson's speech, and later, Representative Ashley Awney joins the show. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum inside the Missouri Capitol building, and I'm joined again by Sarah Kellogg, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter. What was your overall impression of our conversation with the governor? I think it's definitely was a conversation that I feel like he was anticipating, if that makes sense, as far as like talking about legacy and things that he wants to be remembered by. Um, and I think that you can tell that he's not bothered by accusations of him maybe not being Republican enough when it comes to issues of spending. You know, he repeated what he said on his state of the state address, which was putting people first, you know, putting, you know, making Missourians the priority. And I think he's mentioned that with his talks of child care and teacher pay and worker pay. And so I think that it was something of a man that I think he's pretty sure of himself of who, of who he was as a governor and how he's going to be remembered by. But as far as his speech goes, I think it was less policy heavy than it usually would be. 
probably because he's term limited. Was that your impression too? Oh, I think I agree with that completely. I mean, last year there's there was always kind of a big ticket item. Last year was I-70. I think the year before was really just like the influx of the COVID money. So this year is kind of, as he talked about a little bit, like the revenue's growing. It's kind of a, a normalcy budget. There wasn't like a big item that hadn't been done before. You know, in my opinion, we have fully funding transportation and foundation formula. Those have been done again. Moving I-70 money to I-44, that was a pretty big announcement, but there wasn't anything that was like, oh, that's the lead. I think it kind of showed a consistent budget. I've always thought that for better or for worse, Governor Parson is probably one of the most consequential governors in modern history. But as Parson noted, not all of his decisions were universally beloved. And the term consequential does not mean good consequences. How do you think Missourians will ultimately remember his governorship? I think that Missourians are going to remember his budgets and the money that he did allocate towards through the help of the federal government. I think how he navigated the pandemic is going to be a big way of how he is remembered, whether or not people agreed with his vaccine rollout or whether or not the state had a mask mandate. I think that's going to be a pretty big defining legacy. I think his appointments are going to carry further than him. So, you know, you talk about he appointed... Uh, then Attorney General Eric Schmidt, now Senator Schmidt, he appointed a lieutenant governor, a treasurer that's now the auditor. So a lot of his legacy is also going to go beyond him for who he chose to be in power. Now, before Parson rides into the sunset, he has to get through this year. Would you say that the expectations for this session were, were, were pretty low? Or would low be charitable for how low the expectations are? Low is charitable at this point. I I think coming in, as Senator Rowden said, earlier in the week as his decision to strip those four Freedom Caucus members of their committee ships, of their chairmanships, he said the only way that this could get worse is is if right off the bat, in the beginning of the Senate legislature session, that they immediately held up business. And that's exactly what happened. And I felt like it, it to him, it couldn't get worse, which is why he made these these measures that I think are seen as drastic by some. So I, I think expectations are lower than they probably even could have been imagined at the beginning of the year. Yeah, that was the eye-popping news before the governor's speech when uh, Pro Tem Rowden stripped uh, a number of the Freedom Caucus members of their chairmanships, vice chairmanships, kicked Senator Denny Hoskins off the Appropriations Committee. But it seems like that's kind of turned them into martyrs. And you see, like, Senator Bill Igel like, posting memes about taking away his furniture, like, Is it possible that Senator Rowden's move backfired here? I don't think there's anything that Senator Rowden could have done that would have improved the relationships between him and the members of the Freedom Caucus, him and um, Senate Floor Leader O'Loughlin, Cindy O'Loughlin. I don't think there's anything that could have improved that relationship. And so by by doing these consequences, by making these changes, I think it's more of of a standing up to them saying, we're not going to tolerate you all delaying the floor action day. So I don't think, I don't know if it backfired because I don't know if they actually expected any change of it, but it's now just consequences for, you know, what they feel like their actions are. Now, the one thing the legislators have to do is pass a budget. And one thing that was notable in the, the governor's address is it seems like we're back to a quote normal type of budget, even though it's like the largest budget in history. There aren't as many big ticket spending items than there were in the past, as you mentioned before. Is that going to probably be the norm from now on, unless we get another big boatload of federal cash? I, I think that's going to be the norm. I think we're going to have to watch the the possibility of those future tax cuts that they passed a couple years ago, because the more revenue grows, the more those can get kicked in. So I think there might be some adjustments as that happens. But I think that as far as like larger budgets, I think, you know, I asked 
I, you know, I have questions over whether or not like fully funding transportation, for example, which was a big deal two sessions ago that they finally did that. Well, now that's we're looking at the third year of them maybe doing that. So I think that it could be back to normal, but I think there's also going to be possibly some wariness to overspend just considering we might have some tax cuts kicking in. In in the last 10 seconds, do you think that this dysfunction could actually threaten the budget being passed? Not only could it threaten the budget, it could absolutely threaten the passage of the FRA, which is needed to fund uh, a huge share of Missouri's Medicaid payments. So there's a lot at stake. Yeah, and the FRA's federal reimbursement allowance, which funds most of Missouri's hospitals. Sarah Kellogg is St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Absolutely, anytime. Coming up is our conversation with State Representative Ashley Awney, a Democrat from Platte County. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, joined again by Sarah Kellogg, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter. Since Missouri transformed into a deeply Republican state, Missouri Democrats have largely been supporting players in most of the legislative conflicts within the building. But that does not mean they've been unable to make an impact in perhaps ways most outside observers may not expect. Even though they belong to different parties, Missouri's legislative Democrats have been some of the biggest supporters of Governor Parson's budgetary initiatives. And they've also joined with some Republicans to break legislative gridlock at times. Still, there are clear dividing lines, particularly on hot-button issues like abortion rights and transgender health care. Joining us to talk about the governor's speech and what we can expect over the next few months we're joined by State Representative Ashley Awney. The Platte County Democrat has served in the Missouri legislature since 2021 and is running to succeed House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid as the next House Democratic leader. Representative Awney, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Thank you so much for having me. What was your overall impressions of Governor Mike Parson's State of the State address? You know, my biggest impression was how many more times the Democrats stood up than the Republicans did. As you said, uh, a lot of the priorities that he laid out this year are priorities that Democrats have been pushing for years, whether we're talking about child care expansion, uh, pre-K education, including um, fully funding the foundation formula. These are all things that Democrats have filed ourselves, have um, pushed through the legislature. And when we heard Governor Parson list them as priorities this year, we were more than happy to support those efforts. Yeah, you stole a little bit of my thunder. This was yet another year where Democrats were the first to stand up and applaud a series of Parsons proposals. What do you make of that, that you all were the ones first to stand in a clap? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think the contrast between some of Governor Parsons' previous state of the states and last year's and this year's, um, I think we see a marked difference on uh, the the rhetoric and the priorities being pushed. Uh, 
Governor Parson is termed out, and I think that he has the flexibility right now to really push for the initiatives that he believes are best for Missourians, makes our state better and stronger, and um, he's willing to put that work in, even if it means they're not the priorities of the Republican caucus. There is criticism from more conservative Republicans in the Senate that there isn't a plan to reduce spending within this budget to make government smaller. What do you have to say about those comments from Republicans? You know, it's it, there's a constant effort in this building to uh, make governance, government smaller. And um, we even have a committee in the House downsizing state government. Uh, but what I can say is the rhetoric doesn't match the actions in this building. I can't tell you how often we hear bills uh, from Republicans that would drastically expand government. Uh, and and so I, I guess I, I don't really agree with the premise of, of their argument. Is it the inverse for Democrats that the government isn't spending enough on priorities? You know, I think Democrats often say that our budget is a moral document and therefore we should be putting money uh, towards the priorities that um, we believe make our our state strongest. Uh, And there are certainly programs and initiatives we want to see funded. And there are other places where we agree um, cuts could be made. I think that we all want to be pragmatic when we look at our budget. And I think we have to really understand uh, that the Republican tax cuts of the last you know, decade or so have put us in a uh, position with our state revenues where we have to look really closely um, now more so than ever about what we're spending and what those long-term spending plans look like because our revenue is dwindling. With the influx of federal dollars the past couple of years, do you think that there were some missed opportunities regarding funding and what would those be? Sure. Absolutely, I do. Um, first of all, I, I wish we had um, been quicker at the draw with these child care tax credits, this package that's being um, put together by uh, uh, Senator Lauren Arthur and Representative Brenda Shields um, is a fantastic piece of legislation. We should have gotten it through last year, um, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that we, we can do it this year. To continue on talking about child care, you know, the last couple of years I've covered the state of the state, the proposals from Governor Parson have always been monetary. This year, he asked for policy. He asked for the passage of that legislation by Representative Brenda Shields and Senator Lauren Arthur, uh, uh, Senator Arthur being a Democrat. What do you make of that, that he's asking for these bills? So I think that Governor Parson is seeing uh, what we've been seeing in Missouri for years, which is a labor shortage that affects every single community. The Missouri Chamber has done extensive research on this. And what we're hearing from folks in every corner of the state is that child care is one of the biggest barriers to employment. And so we've got to address that. We need to make it more affordable for families. But more than that, we need to make it more accessible for families. We need to make sure that folks who want to provide child care in their community can do so. I've asked this to other people as somebody who has paid thousands upon thousands of dollars to child care within my lifetime. I just have a hard time believing that any sort of policy can make an impact without like a massive investment from the federal government, because it's it's not only a situation where like child care facilities don't have enough employees, but there just aren't enough child care facilities to meet demand. So isn't what the state does going to be like a drop in the bucket compared to what the federal government could and should do? 
Absolutely it is. And, you know, I think that one of the tough parts about being in state government is sometimes we have to take a bite at the apple. Um, we can we can do what we can do. And this is one way that we can move the ball forward a little bit. But you're absolutely right. I, I think it would be incredible to see um, a federal investment in child care across the country because this is not just a Missouri problem. One of Parsons' first policy asks in the speech was a 3.2% raise for state workers. What were your thoughts on that proposal? Listen, I'm always in favor of paying our state workers more. Uh, but, you know, one issue that I've I've come up with every single year is that we're not we're still not paying them enough, even with these small raises. Uh, one of the things that I know you have have talked a lot about, Jason, is uh, how that affects um, our um, our kids in the foster care system when we're talking about what we pay our um, social workers and child abuse investigators. Exactly. Well. Exactly. Our child abuse investigators. And that three percent raise is nothing. Yeah. The, it, for context. The starting salary for a child abuse investigator is $43,000 a year. Your, your colleague, Representative Carrie Ingle, used to be a child abuse investigator and was making in the high 20s. So I want to make it clear it has gone up. But the problem is that is not competitive if somebody who wants to do that sort of work or any other role in the children's division compared to a DSS contractor or a school or a hospital. But I guess conversely, if those places are offering $70,000, $80,000 a year, like, is there really anything the legislature can do to be competitive with that type of salary fluctuation? I'm not sure that there is, um, that the legislature can go far enough to address that. I don't think we can close that gap. What I will say, though, is folks who choose this career path are often folks who do it um, because they're so deeply passionate about helping kids. And unfortunately, um, I think that uh, our system relies on the benevolence of folks in these positions um, to do the work for uh, less than, than they deserve. The governor did point out that if you raise state worker salaries like too much, it may not be sustainable when the budgetary times are bad. Um, How can we make sure we're paying state workers fairly without it causing harm into the future? Well, we could certainly go back in time and not implement all of the Republican tax cuts that have gone into place. Uh, I think that we... um, we are afraid here on the Missouri side of the Kansas-Missouri divide that we are barreling toward a brownback experiment on our side of, of the state. And um, I, I think that that is something that those of us who live in Kansas City and have kind of seen the effects of, of what's happened in Kansas um, over the last several years, uh, we've seen how a lack of revenue can affect um, a state government. What the representative is talking about is that Kansas under then-Governor Sam Brownback cut taxes substantially and then had to raise them sometime later because revenue went off a cliff. I will just point out, though, that there is a big difference between Kansas and Missouri in one regard. It's pretty easy for the Kansas legislature to raise taxes. It is very difficult for Missouri legislators to raise taxes on their own without a vote of the people. It's not absolute because there was a gas tax increase that didn't go to the vote of the people. But Isn't that going to make things a lot more challenging to, quote unquote, reverse what you just mentioned? Absolutely. And that's sort of why I joked about we need to go back in time (laughs) because I wish that they hadn't been implemented at all. Because looking into the future, um, it puts us in a really tough position in terms of our, our state revenues. On teacher pay, 
the governor offered or proposed more money for opt-in programs for teacher raises. What do you want to see for educators in the state? I want educators to be left alone by the legislature, except for giving them more money to do the jobs that they do. Um, I think that teachers, since the COVID pandemic, have been under such inordinate amounts of stress, um, have dealt with so much frustration. We've seen a mass exodus in the industry, um, a teacher shortage across the state. And uh, a lot of that is because, you know, I talk to teachers all the time and they're just so frustrated. They're frustrated because they've got parents and legislators calling them and accusing them of grooming their their students. Um, and it's it's ridiculous. Um, their jobs have been politicized so much. Um, and these folks are some of the hardest working people in our state. Uh, they, they teach our kids. And um, frankly, they're doing the Lord's work. So they deserve more money. And I, I wish the far right would leave them alone. You know, this is the, if it does go through, this will be the third year in a row for fully funding school transportation. When the legislature funded it two sessions ago, then Senate Appropriations Chair Dan Hegeman warned, you know, that didn't mean it was going to be an annual thing. Now we're looking at three years in a row. Do you think this is going to be an annual thing? I hope so. I really do. I don't know, again, because of the revenues um, of the state, but I really hope so. Because again, we've got to prioritize the safety and the security of our students um, and, and making sure that they have safe and adequate transportation to and from school is a pretty easy way to do that. One of the things that was not mentioned in Parsons' speech was the legislative effort to make the Missouri Constitution more difficult to amend, which is, as we'll talk about in a minute, is at the center of a, a big brouhaha in the Missouri Senate. Um, I guess a, I think a question that's not really being asked a lot about f- during debate on this is, is anything they're going to put forward to voters even going to pass, given what happened in Ohio in Arkansas? What's kind of your thought on that? Absolutely not. No. Uh, The voters are not going to be fooled by this effort. Um, What they're trying to do is essentially end majority rule. Um, One person, one vote is the cornerstone of our democracy. And the idea that they're trying to strip that away from Missourians through um, the initiative petition process is devastating. And Missourians are going to see through that. And i genuinely believe, like in Ohio, they'll vote it down. Is there any fear, though, that if they do pass something and it has things like, well, you can only be a citizen in order to vote or you can't do any initiative petitions on sales taxes on food, voters will see that first and not realize that they're really making it more difficult to amend the Constitution? Absolutely. Uh, there is a long history in the state of adding uh, ballot candy, like we, which is what we call that fancy language at the front that gets folks' attention. So if this initiative petition or if this ballot language starts with uh, language about citizenship, which for the record is already state law and in our constitution, um, it, it would signal to the far right likely that this is something they should support. Um, but my hope is that uh, the messaging is strong on our side and folks see through it. So right now there is currently a stalemate in the Missouri Senate where Senate members of the Missouri Freedom Caucus are holding up 25 of Governor Mike Parson's appointments, including Acting Health and Senior Service Director Paula Nicholson and Acting Department of Social Services Director Robert Nodell, unless the Senate passes a resolution making it harder to amend the Constitution. Thoughts on this stalemate? You know, I think it's it's too bad that the Missouri Freedom Caucus feels that they have such a small platform um, in the Missouri Senate that they have to hold up these incredibly important appointments. 
they are embarrassing themselves, frankly, and I think that they're doing an enormous disservice to the legislative process. And uh, I think that Missourians uh, who are paying attention see exactly what they're doing and are are frustrated by it. Would there be as large of an emphasis on quote unquote IP reform this year if there wasn't a possibility of legalizing abortion being on the ballot? No. We heard from Speaker Plocker at the end of last session that if the Senate didn't pass IP reform, that they would be responsible for bringing abortion back to the state of Missouri. That's the long and the short of it. Looking at Parsons' speech as a whole, how do you feel that his priorities align with his fellow Republicans? You know, I think that his priorities align with some Republicans. I think that the uh, idea that all Republicans are on the same page is a uh, is just not the case any longer. That the Republican caucus in uh, the House and in the Senate is so they're so fractured right now. They are not on the same page. So, sure, Governor Parson shares priorities with some Republicans, but certainly not all of them right now. What do you feel was a big miss in his speech? I think that it was incredibly disappointing to hear him go so hard on the lack of reproductive freedom in this state. There have been so many women whose lives have been affected by this law going into effect, this incredibly strict abortion ban, and to take a celebratory tone uh, about that was really disappointing. Well, let's go back to the abortion legalization initiative, which was unveiled uh, about a week or two ago. It would legalize abortion up to what is known as fetal viability. And I don't have the language in front of me, but basically it would be up to a doctor to decide would the fetus survive outside the womb. And that would be the the cutoff. As I'm sure you know, though, there was a really fierce internal debate about whether viability language should have been in this initiative petition. You heard officials from Planned Parenthood speak out against it. What do you think about the fact that the viability limit is going to is going to be in this initiative petition? As you know, Roe v. Wade uh, specified viability as a cutoff as well. And I think that there has long been debate about whether or not that that is the right thing to do. Here in Missouri, though, one of the things I'm most proud of is that Missourians are willing to compromise. Missourians are willing to listen to one another and talk through the challenges of these policies. Uh, And I think that viability is a good place to land. I think some of us are more comfortable um, with with different language. Some of us are more comfortable with viability. Some of us are more comfortable with more strict language. Um, But this is a place where we could meet in the middle. And I really think that the polling shows that it's going to be a successful endeavor. We got a number of questions from listeners, particularly on Reddit. Are you a Redditor, by the way? I am a Redditor. Oh, my gosh. Including from someone named... XCS Shadow Kitten 92. That's my favorite part of the show is reading the Reddit names. <laughs> is anyone in the legislature going to rein in puppy mills? Missouri ranks as the number one puppy mills state. And just for clarity, when people refer to as puppy mills, that is the derogatory term that is used to describe dog breeding operations. Just 
I don't want to get attacked by dog breeders on this, but what, what what's your response to that? Well, as someone who has spent a lot of time before I was a legislator um, volunteering in animal rescue, this is an issue that is deeply personal to me. Uh, I actually just spent two hours sitting in on um, an agriculture committee meeting where a bill is being pushed yet again in the legislature um, that wouldn't allow local municipalities to ban pet land um, from operating in their jurisdiction. Um, that is a supply and demand issue for me. Missouri is, a, is the uh, puppy mill capital of, of the country, and we've got to do something here. So first, I'd say we need to push back against the harmful Republican bills that uh, want to make it even more rampant. Um, and the other thing we need to do is end the supermajority so that Democrats can finally get some uh, bills heard and get some legislation pushed in the right direction. And that's well. Well, going back to the question about the supermajority, Radio Hill Watcher asks, what will it take to fix the Democratic Party in Missouri? I think that Missouri has had a lot of challenges um, in terms of Democratic politics, uh, one of which is an enormous disinvestment from federal Democrats uh, from D.C. We're just once we flipped red in the legislature, we were sort of written off as a red state and those of us who live here know that that's simply not the case. I genuinely believe we're a purple state. I represent a purple district myself. And what I can say is my experience knocking on doors, talking with voters in a district that looks like mine, is that folks are just tired of the extremism. Full stop. They don't want extremists on the right. They don't want extremists on the left. They want to elect someone who will work down the middle, who will work across the aisle, who will listen to their counterparts and create effective policy. That's what Missourians want. That's what Democrats want. We have been building coalitions for years in the legislature as a super minority. We build coalitions over all sorts of issues with Republicans. And that's how we win Um, In the suburbs, that's how we start flipping more seats. Uh, It will only take three seats for us to end the supermajority this year. On a good day, I think we could flip up to nine, truly, uh, in 2024. So we're, we're making waves. We're on our way. The Missouri Democratic Party is finally in a place where we're being uh, they're getting support from the DNC uh, and they're trickling that support down to candidates like myself. What do you believe uh, Governor Mike Parsons' legacy will be as a governor? I think that Governor Parson has had an incredibly fraught tenure as a governor from the way he came in and uh, the way he had to deal with COVID to all sorts of issues he's had with his cabinets over the years. But I do think that Governor Parson will be remembered as someone who was a steady voice in the face of a lot of dysfunction in the legislature and who ultimately uh, is ending his tenure as governor, uh, looking out for the people of Missouri as much as he can. Representative Ashley Ani represents Missouri's 14th House District. Representative, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. The Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air is produced by Jason Rosenbaum and Sarah Kellogg. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by our executive producer, Alex Hoyer. Podcast design by Aaron Doerr. 
St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.